and we're back. To those of you who asked us for more and asked when the next episode was coming, thank you, it did encourage us. This is a long and rambling conversation, but we've included most of it here. It goes into topics that you might not associate with the podcast, but hey, what is meditation but life? You know, a while ago, I was thinking that we should probably, if we're, if we're going to do any, if we're not going to do anything with the podcast, we should at least like have a kind of wrap up, like coda to it. Do you know what I mean? To but, end the series. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, that, that chat the other day, it was like, oh, yeah, there's loads of interesting things we can do. And, and I feel more positive about it because we are coming out of this. Lockdown. It's awful. Space. Dreadful. Terrible time. Um, the there's a great podcast, the Blind Boy podcast. Have you come across it? No. And he's, he's this wonderful Irish guy who who calls it the uh, the Goblin of Uncertain Times was his way of. <laughs> he didn't want to call, mention the pandemic, but he just kept on going on about the uh, this the Goblin. goblin. <laughs> 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 Which is a nice way to put it, really. Well, it seems you know the uncertain times have not ended but at least we feel safe now, vaccinated and so forth, to actually mm. hang out in person a bit, mm. um, which is fantastic because that was kind of the whole impetus for the podcast in the first place, as I recall. I don't remember. Um, many of their podcasts were not in person. Well, they were, I think but, all of them were not in person. But when we first met, we were hanging out and... No, it was it was like on the tube train back from that um, awaken no relation event mm. that um, it's spelt differently readers we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes um, the we, we were chatting with Liam mm. and we were having a good time just talking we were like oh well let's just record a podcast mm. that's it was it was and it was because we were enjoying those conversations in person mm. as as I remember it mm. and then and then we, we carried on because we still had that impetus. Mm. But for me, after about, how, do, how long did we manage? Maybe nine months yeah. of stuff. Mm. By that point, I was just burnt out and I, I still kind of am on I virtual think, things. Yeah, I think with work particularly being intense for you at the moment, like has been in this new project yeah, yeah. and now everything has switched to Zoom as well, I think that doesn't help. Yeah, yeah, and and work is still like I spend half my week on video calls, yeah. and that's just the nature of my job. So, so um, yeah. Whereas I don't really mind hopping on if, like, you know, mm. we have a guest who is somewhere else in the world. Yeah, it's not really a biggie for me. No, yeah. no, I'm, I'm up for it more now, as as, as we discussed, because the uh, the goblins receded somewhat, mm. and. Um, balance is restored a little too maybe a little bit I, I feel a bit more grounded in the in the real world because I no longer have to stay in my home all the time and mm. live in fear of other people in quite the same way mm. or live in fear of you know me giving something you know I still feel it I got on the bus here and I'm like am I wearing a mask yeah I guess I'm wearing a mask there's old people on the bus I put my mask on because you know it's for them Mm-hmm. And then, and then there's all that kind of uh, 
the goblin's still there because you're looking around at the people who aren't wearing masks thinking, well... Why are they not wearing masks? Yeah, you assholes. And the goblin continues. So here we are. <laughs> it's 2021. <laughs> at least it's slightly better than it was. I mean, much better than it was. It's much better. It's much better. I feel much more grounded in, in reality. I mean, it's still like ridiculous things happening in this country. For, for listeners elsewhere, you might have heard that our glorious leaders have <laughs> impaled the UK <laughs> on a mix of xenophobia, racism and just pure hubris to, um, to the point where we, uh, <laughs> we've lost like half the value of our currency and we, can, we can't get petrol anymore and everything costs more. <laughs> well, it's slowly happening. We'll, yeah. we'll see how... If things change or not. Yes, yes, we'll see. It's going to be an interesting few years, that's mm. for sure. Uh, nothing new in the big scheme of things in this place. but. Um, and so what about your practice, Bill? What do you envision for yourself? Practice. What does it even mean these days? I mean, so, so listeners, we, we had a little catch-up the other day and I was very pleased to learn that mm. Jasmine's been keeping stuff going. She's kept the light. She's kept the light for us. <laughs> the triple gem. <laughs> and uh, I haven't in, in, in many ways. I don't, it's interesting, right? Because there's times in my life when I've managed quite a lot of meditation, but I've also not been very balanced in terms of mm. my relationships and getting on with people on a basic level and stuff like that. So in, in one aspect, I'm like, well, actually, how much does it matter? Maybe it matters more to have decent relationships. And I haven't managed that either, but <laughs> there's, that, that's one side to it. Another side of it is informal practice, yes. which is... Very important. Very, it is... It, you know, it feels like a kind of crappy excuse in some ways, but in some ways I, I do see that as more important than, or equally important as formal. Because I know I get a lot out of actually sitting down and saying, right, I'm going to yeah. meditate 30 minutes. It's just amazing. Mm -hmm. And every time I do it, I'm like, wow, that's so good. Right, I'm going to do And then something sideswipes me and I never do it again. But just taking like, you know, 10 minutes in a hot bath to not do anything and, and just have that experience mm. and, and these, these just little things I'm out walking the dog and sometimes I will just you know count my breath as mm. I walk across a field mm. and, and little things like that remind me of I guess uh, some of the more like monastic practices that I've benefited from where people do that every day and you know they're going to mm. go and fetch wood and mm. carry water and all that and mm. they just do that thing and there's, there's a real power in that. Present living. Yeah. Yeah, beyond the intellect, just actually experiencing life and not, and not just living in a daydream of your, your thoughts. I mean, because that's what dedicated practice is really for, though, like to, yeah. you know, get yourself up to a level where you can be more present in those everyday things. Yeah. Um, and then it, you know, increases the quality of that presence mm. in those things as well. Mm. Um, and then our ability to come back to those. So maybe if having informal practice, we are, say, present 
10% of the time mm. with, let's say, informal practices throughout the day. But then maybe uh, with dedicated practice, it might increase to 30% yeah. to 40% yeah. because of how much more present our baseline level is. Yeah. And then we remember more often, checked out less. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. It's like a turbo booster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally, totally. Mm. And um, I need to figure out like... How to weave some how in. How to get back there. What I managed today actually was mm. like 20 minutes of journaling. Great. Which which um, I find such a powerful practice. It's, 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 it, you know, it's not a substitute for meditation, but it's a parallel thing that... Um, some of the times when I felt most grounded in life and most kind of steady, like on a, you know, finding a direction to go mm. were when I was managing that daily and just really um, able to, to make that space and plan mm. and, and understand, you know, self-reflect a bit. Yeah. I, I, from the artist's way... Yeah. I had been doing the six pages a day for a while and mm. like within a month I'd finished like an entire book so mm. one of these books and when did you get into the artist's way a couple months ago well uh at least by April oh okay okay and I think I might have said so this one has been since the mid July and I've just finished it where has it been mid July so if I'm doing it properly, yeah. I'll finish one of these books in a month. Yeah. If I don't, which I haven't been for this one, it is... I haven't even been writing the dates. Doesn't matter. That, that's when you know that the practice ends up... Oh, it, as in, I when I'm not practicing daily, yeah. I don't write the dates properly. Right. That's how I know. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, I just write the, the time of time of the day, seven in the morning. <laughs> as long as you've got the year on the cover of the, the journal, that, that, that's most of it for me. Most important. Okay. Yeah, there's no more dates after this. But I would say roughly maybe August, so July, August. So maybe a month yeah. and a half rather yeah, than a month. Yeah. yeah, so still okay. It's a great book, that. Um, it was one of the first... One of the reasons I, I got into journaling in the first place. And then it, it was about five years ago I read a great article on sort of why... Nice. Jasmine's recording the, the pouring of the tea. <laughs> Wonderful. I, I got into another article on, you know, why journaling can change your life. Hmm. And... Um, that one suggested a kind of structure to it, mm. a format of like, okay, I'm going to write down things I'm thankful for, mm. things kind of self-assess on where I'm at in my life and plan what I want to do to well, get to where I want to be and of that kind of stuff. Mm. And um, I followed that for a good, a good couple of years. Mm. Uh, and that was, that was really useful as well. So do you like those types of journaling books where they have, you know, three things I'm grateful for or what I learned and then what I learned in the day and then 
my most important priorities are, and then they have maybe one other thing like a quote, and then they'll do that daily. Do you like those? Uh, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't buy one of those just because I'd find it annoying. Uh, but I, I did follow a template roughly along those lines for a while because mm. I, I did find it. You know, I mean, it's it's one of those scientifically proven things, right? That if you do reflect on things you're happy about in your life, you you get happier. Yeah. And so I found that useful. And why don't you like those books? It well, it just sets too too rigid a format for it. Mm. You know, there's a set length to each section, mm. and sometimes I didn't find it useful to dwell in a particular bit too mm. long. So I just had, kind of had. I'd either have like um, in the back of the book, I'd keep keep a list of the things I want to get into each journal, and then I would just refer to that if I'd forgotten. Uh-huh. Or I would, for a while, I was doing it on a computer or an iPad, mm-hmm. and I'd keep a template mm-hmm. and just reuse that every time. Do you think that the lengths that you would write would be varying, and you prefer? Yeah, yeah, it varies a lot. Uh-huh. And sometimes it would be like a load of stuff about now on mm-hmm. sometimes it'd be a lot of planning and, mm-hmm. you know that kind of thing mm. yeah I wonder how you found it in your six page thing like what what sort of content's coming out um I like to I think start with any pressing thoughts that are just there like that's always how I begin mm. um more recently I've been starting with where I am in the space of the world mm. because I don't think I recall very well my days Mm. or where place and situation but sometimes it's quite nice as a diary and would help for placing memories Mm, mm, mm. and so I've been doing that and then I sometimes do a little drawing um I think my most recent drawing was of two croissants just to say what I'd ate that day (laughs) for fun (laughs) and then um I do lots of uh, creative ideating and then answering questions of like what's really important to me or right now I'm trying to find out what projects I want to undertake. And so I do a lot of idea progressions Mm, mm. of what that might be. So I, I do loads of those, even if they go to waste and it's not a full thing. Yeah. It's just nice to explore. Um, and then other things like, so one topic that's really been at the top of my mind is um, safety for women. Mm. And kind of going into what are the real sources behind these issues and how is it possible to help solve such a huge problem like Mm. worldwide Mm. so these are like i guess going into big questions like you know how how do we solve racism how do you know Mm. all of these like types of huge topics that we as one person might not be able to fix but um i guess i'm trying to consider what would be the most effective course of action if i was to do an intervention Mm. and um what would be most needed Mm. but this one specifically at the moment is for female safety and then education for maybe children uh male and female on how to kind of stop this as a root cause like Mm. problem Mm. yeah yeah it's such a big one i mean 
there's been so many stories recently in the press of how policemen have been mm. the, the murderers and mm. rapists and man, mm. it's a, yeah, it's a big one. Yeah. It, it reminds me of another uh, conversation I listened to recently on the Conspirituality podcast. Shout out to the uh, the authors of that. What do you call podcast creators? Um, which podcast is brilliant. Creators, yeah. And they had an episode where they interviewed this young guy whose name I forget. I'll look it up. Who has he's in his twenties and he's written a very poetic book about how he deals with the climate crisis mm-hmm. and in his life and trying to figure out his future and what he can do and all the rest. And, and for him, it was, it's the, 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 the things that an individual can do are inconsequential in the face of the, the, you know, the changes that we're already starting to experience. And for him, it's about policy and government well. and, and how. So that's what it makes me think of in, in that context. Like mm. the institutions that can make the biggest difference mm-hmm. there are, are those. I mean, the... Companies NG- as well. The NGOs yeah. can do something, but they spend most of their time and money fundraising mm-hmm. and paying the salaries of all the people who <laughs> do the fundraising and all the rest. I just don't see them as, as very efficient. Um, but, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm probably wrong, but that, that's certainly how he sees it on the climate stuff because it's the only way you can actually control the corporations who are causing the trouble. Yeah, I mean, NGOs are, they might be putting some interventions across, but, you know, there, there might still be the polluters who are still doing that and they're only trying to then fix the issue that's arising yeah like cleaning the seas you know like charities might do that or they might be trying to well i think the more effective charities would be trying to work with government in order to help them shape policies and stuff Mm. and we have one for example animal equality Mm. who is a great charity animal equality uk um they have been working with the government well what they do is they get investigative um, footage of yep. farms and yep. then they help show that people are not even keeping to the regulations yep. and then the governments yep. can be like this isn't right and then they bring them to court so I think they are the second most effective animal charity in the world I love that and it, it's um, it'd be I'd love to uh, is there a ranking system for, for how effective charities are in general like uh, I don't know if it uh, well, I think um, that would be interesting they are definitely uh, based on you know where the money does go to, yeah. but how we can compare someone getting water to someone getting an operation, exactly, maybe yeah, not. Yeah. But um, I think that they just base it on who actually gets the money and if it's going to the place they said. Yeah, and maybe yeah. some might be impact with lives saved. Yeah. So like um, malaria uh, yeah. charities are notoriously very effective because they save lives directly yeah. from just nets. Yeah, um, for very cheap. So life saved, but I I think we can go into other qualities of, um, you know how you can't really measure education necessarily, mm. or mm. Um, the impact of 
emotional security or yeah 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 and there's that fact that we we were chatting about the other day that uh for every dollar in aid that goes to the developing world we take back like ten dollars in debt payments yeah and what, what was the book that you had mentioned jason hickle the divide listeners uh read it at your peril it's brilliant but kind of terrifying um it, it it's an amazing book because it uh i mean i i i've known that that there's a you know this post-colonial state we live in is um we have this kind of illusion of us being the the the, the charities helping out the developing world but well, he, he outlines basically how, um, a bit like Jared Diamond in Guns, Gems and Steel, which is also excellent, how the powerful, rich countries uh, are rich and powerful because they have stolen from the poorer countries, mm. basically. And, you know, there's, there's a long, there's so many stories you could tell about that, like how, you know, India, I think when it first encountered Britain, it had like, a third of the world economy, something like that. And within a few hundred years, it was down to like 5% or something. And Britain had like got half of it or something. It was really crazy stuff like that happened in the, in the last few hundred years. Um, and, and also it's ongoing. It's, it's never stopped that, that story. Um, and the, the way that we predate basically on poorer countries, um, it's pretty remarkable. And it, it, uh, it changed my perspective on the stories of aid and charity and so mm. forth that we have in the West, in the mm. rich countries. I think, so, I guess, yeah. a greater discernment then between, you know, what is actually helping or things where, <clears throat> if they already have organisations there, or how is it that we can better help with structures that do actually help. Yeah. So yeah. it's even more effective charity. What does that even mean? Yeah, yeah, and because again, I, it's sort of back I, to government policy and all the yeah. rest, yeah. Because I definitely probably think that some charities will be doing good work mm, mm. and not taking anything back necessarily, yeah. yeah. I mean, so... Do you yeah. have pointers on where to, like, find that or who, what types of charities should maybe be researched into? I think there's stuff in Hickel's book. Hickel's yeah. book, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, he has a sort of chapter, the last chapter on things you can do. Mm. Um, things that help, but I I didn't finish the book because I was <laughs> so horrifying. I got through a few chapters and I was just brutalized and I gave up. It's still on my shelf. Um, but thank you, Jason. You opened my eyes to that. Um, it's a tough one. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. And I think well, you know when we even think about the, let's say the heart of the bodhisattva and what it means to even have everyone awakened or to be of help or service. Mm. What does that even look like as things become more complex? In that same way, you know, yeah. giving charity or giving aid or helping someone else, you know, there's so many more barriers to what that even looks like now. It's not even necessarily a, a simple means because you, you, one would think, you know, giving charity, many people don't even donate to charities mm. um, but say for those who do they, they would otherwise be thinking that they're doing something good mm. um, so there's always these you know I, and it reminds me of in 
if anyone has watched The Good Place. Which I haven't yet. It's, it's very good. Yes. It's um, a show on Netflix, but they have this billboard of like just buying a tomato. Mm. And you think that maybe buying a tomato from a local farmer's market would be good for you. But actually, that tomato was grown by this person, but that person, in order to have grown it, stole from this guy who then um, took... Yeah, and it, it goes like all the way back to a chain, so it's actually a negative effect. Right, right. right, right. <laughs> um, and that's the kind of um, comical irony that it... Um, one action we can't see yeah. what the yeah. original yeah. action So many be. things like that. I mean, paper bags in shops. Mm. And it was like, oh, great, paper bags, you know, they're biodegradable. But then the paper bags take, like, ten times as much water to make. And if we all switch what, to paper... What, than plastic? Yeah. Really? If we all switch to paper bags, we'd have no bloody trees left. And I, I remember reading a, an article on that. It's like really? how... There's many examples of stuff like that where it's mm. like, it, it, on the face of it, it's a good thing. Maybe it's something better. Maybe we could be making bioplastic bags that degrade. I don't know. But uh-huh. in that particular story, the paper bag thing, which you'll find in any posh shop now. Yeah. I thought paper bags were good. Me too, until I read that. And maybe it's wrong, but it's hard to, <laughs> it's hard to figure these things out, right? I feel like there's not one source of information where everything is current. Like, it's very difficult to know. It's the same with even just the vaccines, you know, there's mm. loads of misinformation around, but we have the government website and even the government website doesn't show all the studies that are up to date where we can look in a really nice format or that seems to be accessible. No, no, it's a really tough one, that. Um, and yeah. then people can't make decisions because they they don't have the information. But then, you know, we'll read on Guardian this like study and then that will change our minds. But then someone else might not have read that one Guardian yeah, yeah, yeah. article. Yeah, it's, it's like the, um, you know, is coffee good for you question or something like that, right? You, you, if you just follow the stuff that pops up in the papers, mm. there's one study after another on oh, coffee's good for you and then the other one's coffee's bad for you and, then, and you, you could go on like this forever. Mm. It's very hard to get that kind of, uh, well, I mean, you have to look up the meta-analysis, right? Mm. That's why I did recently, but in the end I've decided not to drink coffee or drink less coffee just because it's like clearly a a massive like post-colonial kind of extraction exercise Uh right it always comes from poor countries Mm -hmm. and those people could be doing something better with their time than making coffee for me but but is it well I, i guess it goes into is the trade actually good for them is it good for them? I don't know if it is good for them or, you know, what are their working conditions? Yeah, um, well, and that goes back to... Would they be doing anything else with the coffee? Would they even be there if it wasn't for colonialists? You know what I mean? Would, would they even... I mean, it, it just seems that... Well, you know, the, the sugar and coffee trades, right, yeah. were established by slavers. And the people who are still in those countries, still doing that, are still basically in that system what because they don't pay like farmers very much and and far worse i mean that there's i mean even like man i don't even want to talk about it but avocados Mm. like apparently there's 
criminal cartels run these like avocado rackets. Really? Because <laughs> there's so much money in it. Mm. And it, it's, again, it's just a kind of like, it's a form of extraction mm. from those countries, right? Where there's money to be made, mm. there's going to be people, and specifically in poor countries. I don't know. It just feels like by, and I'm not going to stop drinking coffee and buying avocados, but I, I feel wary of those things because I know where they come from. And I know that there's, there's very little way that I can actually find something that really is fair trade. Like, I have so little insight into that. I, I, yeah, and I, I think that, that's, that's mainly uh, the important issue, that standards are improved for um, these types of countries who we do trade with, right? Because yeah. if they were pay, being paid what you might enjoy, like think is reasonable for them, yeah. then you wouldn't have a problem. You'd be like, that's okay, because they want to sell that and we're just trading our services. And otherwise, you know, they wouldn't be able to continuously, you know, because trade is not necessarily a bad thing. It's yeah. only if people are treated fairly during the process. Yeah. Notoriously, farmers, even in the UK, um, I think... A, I think uh, one in five are poor, like uh, yeah, yeah, in poverty. Yeah. Um, even though they give like government grants and such, but they have to pay farmers to be farmers now. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think every, anything to do with things which are not going to be services and um, within trade that are high. So it's all about skills and education in general. And until maybe they have, there will always be some levels of inequality unless you know, people are more radical in the sense of, uh, there was a, there's a company, it's a financial uh, services company and the CEO decided to pay everyone $70,000. I remember, yeah. Minimum, yeah. 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 And that distribution or the understanding of being like, okay, well, I want our company to be like this. It would require just people to say minimum the lowest of the like people working in any field or sector should be this mm, mm. and that should be enough for them to be able to thrive mm. even if it's comparatively not going to be a um, first world country salary mm. but not like farmers wouldn't mind if they could you know live happily and, and such like so I think that's mainly the issue rather than trade it's a tricky one i mean it's probably um beyond the scope of this podcast to to, <laughs> <laughs> to figure out i just well I, I guess all i'm saying is i feel really cautious about um to lie down. that narrative of um capitalism making things better for poor people because it never really has it, it's. Uh, I think it, it hasn't in the past because it's just been slavery and stuff like that. I, 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 I think many people do benefit from having um, a job. Okay, okay. Let, let me reframe it. Right. If we go back to, and we're probably getting way off the uh, the, the awakening bylines, <laughs> but it, if you trace it back to the the invention of capitalism, mm. it also invented poverty at the same time. There, there's, 
and I'm not saying we can go back to before that time because we can't. We're, we're in a different place now. But um, when rich people figured out that they could get even richer by enclosing land and getting people to work on it for them, mm. um, if just 400 years ago in Britain, mm. they, um, they invented poverty because before that, People were poor, but they were also self-sufficient. And after that, when they enclosed the land and said, okay, you can't actually use that for your sheep grazing or whatever anymore, um, now you've got to work for me, then people for the first time became really poor. And so desperately poor that they had to move off the land into cities and work in factories. Yeah, but I, I feel like it would have been different. Say, you know, say everyone was super fair super yeah. amazing yeah it wouldn't have necessarily been that way and that's what i'm saying like I, I feel like if if people were paid properly for their services uh-huh. it's not that there's an issue of working because working is not necessarily bad and being paid for your services isn't necessarily bad it's just if you're not then that's when it's terrible okay i think let's i forgot to bring it but i'll bring you the divide to read because he's very persuasive on this stuff and, mm. and I'm not. So <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be a great conversation to have perhaps once you've read the first few chapters of that because it, mm. it, it's an interesting one. And um, yeah, like you say, it's probably, it's probably beyond this podcast mm. to, um, to really figure it out. I mean, I'm with you in many aspects, but I'm also really um, cautious about it because of, mm. because of Jason Hickle, basically, so... I also think of our like our tax system would have to go like hand in hand with it as well, yeah. where then there would be a distribution back. Yeah. But th- that's why I don't think that necessary trade is an issue, as of what trade is in itself. Right. I right. think it's only an issue if yeah. nothing is distributed back or people are not fairly taxed. You know, yeah. like if they can oh, evade well, huge taxes. There's a thing. <laughs> yeah. So like these are more of the issues. Than people having jobs. Yeah, 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 yeah. Want, want to let, let's let's have that chat again. Uh, let's let's have an episode on Jason Hickel. Let's get Jason Hickel on if we can, and, and have a chat that. with him yeah. about it. That would be amazing. Cool. He's a legend. Um, yeah, cool. I would like to raise the topic since we're drinking this tea, which has in it what type of mushroom? Reishi. Reishi mushrooms. The mushroom of immortality. Complete pivot here, folks, to Reishi mushrooms. Yeah. And by the way, Bill has just said, and I've never known this before, that you should brew your green tea without a top on. Apparently so. You heard it. You heard it from my my wife, Memiko, who's Japanese, folks. (laughs) There you have it. Yeah, I know this is a real key thing for you. You're all on the edge of your seats thinking about green tea just there. But um, apparently... I think these tips are very helpful. Gets more oxygen or something, apparently. Improves the flavour. And so, reishi mushrooms. Reishi? Yes. Yes. Not reiki, folks. Reishi. Um, Do good things for you. Yeah, so the interesting thing about some mushrooms is that it can help to support our immune system. And reishi is definitely uh, one of them. So... How they actually function, I I don't know the science of it interacting with our bodies, but there are so many studies 
and um, the really great documentary, Fantastic Fungi. Which we both recently watched. Is a nice entry point into mushrooms and some of their effects. They actually don't go so much into the health benefits. I think they kind of segue into, um, you know, what different, like, I think the understanding of what mushrooms are Mm. or fungi and um, what forms they come in because it's not only just mushrooms. And then it goes into uh, some history of fungi. Then it goes to a guy who researches it but not so much is told actually in the documentary about loads of the health benefits. Mm, mm. So that's actually a bit of a shame. And it's really and it's interesting only because I know yeah, those I, things before. I, I hope that there's a lot more like decent science done on this because it's, it's fascinating. And I, I'm really curious, like one of the questions I didn't hear answered in that documentary is why... So, so why are like mushrooms, fungi, why are they so active? I mean, I get it about penicillin, right? Mm. That this fungi has figured out how to fend off bacteria and viruses as it grows because it needs to. Mm. Or is it just bacteria? Probably. Anyway, the, the, why, why are there so many like psychoactive mushrooms and poisonous mushrooms and stuff like that as well? It wasn't, didn't really go into that. And that's a good question. Mm. I guess um, in an hour and a half. There's a lot to cover. Yeah, it can only do so much. I think it's just a nice introduction. And I think they kind of wanted to show the researcher uh, his story into it in order to be a compelling narrative Hmm. so that people can maybe just start uh, researching for themselves. But it's in the same way that we might see different adaptations of why things might be venomous to why they might glow in the dark Mm, mm. and animals and of all sorts you know i'm not an anthropologist but we'd need an anthropologist uh on probably fascinating show anyway it's really great and um the thing with mushrooms is i don't know there's loads of supplements now available People have it in tea form and continuously brew it. You can also eat it. The interesting thing about, like, sometimes they say that mushrooms are a good source of vitamin D, but actually only some of them are if they've been grown in certain um, light conditions. Mm -hmm. And you'll see in the supermarkets a little sticker which tells you some of them that are high in vitamin D. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, the majority of them aren't. There we go. Um, and you also have an interesting story about your mother. My grandma. Yeah. She has like the most expensive mushrooms around the world um, that she drinks in kind of a strong formulation every day. And she's had stage four cancer for the past five, even six years now. But she hasn't died. I love and this story. Just mushrooms are keeping her alive as well as the will to we uh her grandchild so also my cousin is quite sick and he's only a a little child Mm. but it's almost as if she feels like she needs to be there for him so she Mm. won't die like physically Mm. she won't die wow where's she based she's in croydon right okay 
to just down yeah. south. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a great story. I mean, um, I, yeah, I, I would love to. I'm going to. I'm going to dig into this more. This She's show. so inundated with mushrooms. Like, well, more people will give her other mushrooms. Yeah. Of course, it's known for like Asian medicine, but she's just like, I can't take anymore. Like, I have so many mushrooms. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> so good. And actually, Phil found some psilocybin in the field. Oh, there we are. There we are. Yes, it, it does grow everywhere this time of year. It's it, yeah, remarkable. Um. Yeah, psilocybin. Well, there's a story. Yeah, it, that's a very interesting one again. Like, why? I mean, I guess maybe it stems back to that thing they mentioned in the documentary of how we 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 basically have a common ancestor, mm-hmm. like animals and fungi mm-hmm. were sort of the same genus, like mm-hmm. three billion years ago or something, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Perhaps that's what I mean. It's a really interesting, wasn't it? Why, why, why is, why is anything psychoactive, on one angle, but mushrooms in particular? <laughs> that's very strange. Well, it's funny because psychoactive is only then that you know, for us, it, it only it happens to interact with us in that way. But otherwise, for them, this is just how they are. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Maybe it's all just a vast coincidence. But it's it's odd that I mean, I've I've read that say the psilocybin, the active ingredient, uh, a bit like LSD, it very closely mimics serotonin. I think mm-hmm. that was the one, and so hence its crazy powerful action mm. from small amounts. Yeah, interesting stuff. I mean, I I, I personally, uh, I don't know if I mentioned this on on the podcast before, but when I really got into deeply into meditation, I lost all interest in drugs mm. because I had equally powerful experiences on retreats. Mm. And I was like, well, I got here on my own steam, you know, and mm. why would I want to bother with, um, with drugs, especially street drugs, which you're just basically buying random crap you you've got no idea what it might actually be i feel like the interesting thing for people would be like okay say i don't really care about i have no idea what it might be likely Mm. that it's going to have maybe some contaminants but it's not going to kill me people might say okay well you had to go on a retreat which was 10 hours Mm. a day for 10 days Mm. and that's a lot of investment oh it's much harder yeah yeah Um, especially People just do them as party drugs on a night out. Yeah, so they might just say, well, if I can buy it for, for a fiver or a yeah. tenner, yeah. then I can have this spiritual experience. Yeah, it's a very different context for a lot of people. But it's very interesting to, to hear about the uh, the successes of like psychedelic therapy. Mm. It's very interesting. Also, the, the, the there was one of the things that came out of the film was how after these therapy sessions, they measured, I think, like the interconnectedness of the brain and they found they'd actually grown more brain matter than a control group, something like that. It was, mm. it was very, very interesting. Yes, that's really interesting. And I guess more science will be uncovered. I have a friend, actually, who's a researcher at UCL, mm. a long-term meditation retreat uh, retreater, mm. and he is going... He, I think the study he's doing at the moment is on taking psychoactives, mm. um, microdosing, or up to a certain amount 
but yeah. taking them on long-term retreats. Okay. In combination. Love it. So maybe we can have him on the show. I'd love to, yeah. So Tim Leary. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, really interesting. Hmm. Um, funny one is my neighbour was into microdosing. I don't think she still is, but um, I was just, re- you know, browsing through these articles after watching that film. And... Um, And came across a picture of her in The Guardian. <laughs> I didn't know. It was in like a 2019 article on, on microdosing, um, which is fascinating. Though there, there have been studies done on microdosing and it's very... Um, there's not much evidence yet that it actually does anything much mm. um, because they, they did one with like a control group and the placebo group had equally positive effects to the people who taking the real thing so uh yeah and placebo i mean might be good enough placebo is very powerful yeah no see yeah placebo is almost better to just put everyone in a pretend study group and just <laughs> give them a sugar pill well then perhaps that's that's why homeopathy is still going so strong i mean um it's uh it's a very strange thing that one yeah I there was I think maybe a year and a half ago homeopathy was struck off as a real science to uh, treat things and its status yeah was formally taken off yeah we could reason from what I've gathered I mean as a child my parents were into stuff like that and they tried to treat my hooping cough with it um it didn't really work many years later i came down with a tb related thing and when they did the x-rays they're like oh you've got old scarring in your lungs there so it was so freaking bad that my lungs were scarred 30 years later by this this cough that they were trying to treat with sugar pills i mean for (laughs) um yeah, there's a few things like that in my childhood. That uh, I mean, it's just it's just freaking woo. Uh, that, that and it winds me up so much that that side of I don't know my history because it's impacted me directly and mm. just in general. I just get so wound up by that stuff. Um, it's partly why I've enjoyed that conspirituality podcast so much because it. I mean, getting back to meditation, like mm. there is so much benefit to be had from it. Like mm. it's, it's this obvious, powerful, natural thing we all have access to. Mm. And then people build cults around it and enrich themselves and, um, and predate on people. And that's, that's also just, it's pretty amazing really. I'm a, I feel very lucky that I haven't been like suckered into one of those things. Well, I think what's important for those who are listening Mm. are kind of the, like, especially with people who are wanting to learn more, open, curious, Mm. um, just about anything, right? And being able to be, that's like what allows us to be impressionable and therefore at risk 
of people who might not have our kind of interest, well, our interests at heart. Mm. Um, and maybe they think they even might be. Mm. So there is a lot of room in the spiritual space of all sorts of topics. Mm. And sometimes we can't necessarily discern what is okay or what, what's not okay. But I think a few principles that do help, and maybe Bill, you'll, you'll chime in with a, f- a few that you might say, is um, one might be doing some of the practice and seeing the benefits. The second is if someone is worried about your health or that you're acting differently, Mm. sometimes it might be because they don't understand. Mm. But the other thing is to also realize that a change has happened and then to be discerning yourself of what you have become involved in. Mm. Does it hurt you? Does Mm. it hurt anyone else? Mm. Um, Do you think you should be worried about it? I think... These questions are really good to be aware of um, mm. as we traverse unknown spaces. And sometimes, you know, we do want to traverse these spaces because we might learn something that might change our lives. Mm. But I think the other is to have caution and continuous uh, thoughts. Like someone might say, but you have to fully believe in this thing. Otherwise, it's not going to work for you. And I think we should have caution around people who try to say to us this is the word yep and anything else you might add Bill these are the first things that arise for me Uh, I mean I think for me it boils down a lot to who's making the money and who is there money involved is there money involved and if not money are there resources involved in uh, some way yeah and who's who's building power Mm. in in this situation and if you're if you're Following someone who, whether there's money involved or not, but they're sort of building power and dominance over you or others, then that's a sign of caution. I mean, it's a tricky one. You know, I mean, I was thinking back to the Goenka Vipassana tradition, which I've spent a lot of time in, and I, I still have a lot of time for. I, I still think that that's, that's one of the best examples. It's one of the only examples I've come across of, of a, like a major global meditation tradition that isn't out to rip you off mm-hmm. or build a cult in the same way. That said, it's not without its dangers. And as a big institution, it's quite protective of itself at often at the expense of psychologically vulnerable people, or in fact anyone, because that, that category includes everyone mm-hmm. to some degree or other, who goes on their courses. And, and they, as a sort of institution out to protect itself, it will cover up and sort of... It doesn't, it doesn't mention... It, it need, in my opinion, they, they ought to at least have a health warning, just like any, any pill you, you, you mm-hmm. buy in a chemist, it has a health warning on and contraindications and potential things that might happen previously people have been known to run away in the middle of the night naked and die of hypothermia 
people have committed suicide during the course or after people have like because that's real yeah that's the reality of of very deep very hardcore meditation practices especially going into them sort of cold turkey Mm. um it's a dangerous and powerful thing to do Mm. and they don't really say that they just they just sort of welcome all welcome all and yeah they say (sighs) you should well they do ask questions on what your previous like have you ever had and so they want to be aware because they do say they 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 do specifically say this is not for people who do have mental illness when when with mental illness but they they although now one in three or one in four people do have mental illnesses yeah yeah but might not have uh realized that for themselves so that's just people coming into it also unaware of themselves in what they're getting into yeah and can't properly discern. Um, so they might not put the health warning, but they do try to avoid having people in. Um, well, they, they make out like it's it's safe for... Everyone. The average person, right? Yeah. Which is generally true, but... Mm. There it, are exceptions. But absolutely not. 100% true for everyone mm-hmm. and um, you know I feel lucky that I got through my first course intact really it was it was brutally hard mm-hmm. uh, I was very hard on myself during it um, and I came out better in some ways mm-hmm. um, but like many people don't um, including also, my mother who went on a course. I would also say many people who do as well. Because let's say 120 people go on a course every time. Yeah. I would say there might only be very small cases within yeah, 120 yeah. people. One so, or two, one or two, but one of yeah. them might die. I mean, and yeah. that that is a very, <laughs> it's a very hardcore mm. thing. I mean, uh, any doc, no doctor would do that. Mm. You know, no, no decent doctor would say, this is 100% safe, just come and enjoy it. If you're in basic good health, just do this thing, you'll be fine. It's not like going for a a 20-minute walk, Mm. which is something we could pretty much recommend to everyone. Mm. Um, It's much more like doing a marathon or something, which might kill you in some very small... Yeah. You know, there's a very small risk that you might die trying to do a marathon or something similarly, like, hardcore. Yeah. Um, So... Yeah, I think that that's irresponsible, basically. Mm. I think that that's my biggest beef with uh, the Vipassana Foundation. Mm. And another thing that that I find a little troubling is that bit beyond the introductory courses and some like, you know, the Satipatthana, that they, they, they also do, listeners who haven't gotten into this stuff, they, if you've done a introductory course the sort of basic 10-day thing then you can go back and do it the Satipatthana Sutta course which is based on one of the old Buddhist texts and it's it goes a little bit deeper into why the hell you're doing what you're doing um but it it's it, there's not an awful lot of guidance in it I would say beyond if you're lucky getting a decent assistant teacher and your own your own practice and that's that's nice but I 
you know, I, I feel like when I came across, say, Daniel Ingram's work uh, a couple of years ago, I learned way more about what had happened to me during courses than I ever did from any assistant teacher. Mm. It, it, it gave me a model to understand mm. some of those things that just wasn't really there. And I never got that kind of guidance from the person. And I'm not, not saying Ingram's right on everything, but at least it was something. Mm. At least it was some kind of model. Well, I guess, you know, maybe on the Awaken site, we should say, you know, before you embark on mm. a mm. meditation retreat, any, not just Goenkers, because mm. the majority of them are not going to be... I, and I think it is because of formalised traditions like this that m many people have come out unscathed, yeah. the majority of people, and then there might be the percentage, the, the far smaller percentage who don't. But it would be... Maybe for people like ourselves who have been on it to give a bit more preparatory mm. uh, recommendations. Totally, yeah. Um, for that. And what would be helpful. And yeah. maybe resources that could be helpful. And is this the right thing for you? And mm. are you ready for it? Mm. Um, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But I don't think a doctor or or someone who might be a psychotherapist will be able to tell you necessarily if it's definitely going to be safe. So fundamentally, it will always be at your own, you know, choice. Yeah, your own judgment, but you should, you should be aware of the risks. Yeah. Perhaps that's a good future episode. We could talk through that because there's a lot in that. <laughs> As in what would make one? Well, like, you know, kind of, are you thinking of going on a retreat? Well, here's what you should know first. Yeah. Because uh, I never really had that. <laughs> I don't think. Well, actually, I did some research on on some of them. Yeah. And I only looked up what the experience of people who had documented yeah. theirs were. Yeah. Um. But other than that, I think it's also important to to say how like on a retreat even to, to think about how much you want to be doing because it is 10 hours a day. But I saw some people who were just in their room for many of the hours too mm, and not mm. doing it. So I think you can also, yeah, we'll give guidance on that. I think mm, that mm. might be nice. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when I, when I first did a retreat, I had really no idea what I was getting myself into. And this was the late 90s. You couldn't look it up. There weren't loads of journalists who'd done courses at that point. Yeah. It was just kind of my my ex girlfriend at the time had done a course in California and was convinced it was like the best thing possible anyone could do to get on their spiritual quest. And I was so eager for something like that at the time mm. that I was like booked and on a course within a month of hearing about it happening in the UK because she thought she, she didn't even realize that they were here. Mm. So. Yeah, I just dived in head first. But um, would it be nice to know a bit more what I was getting myself into, really? Mm. Yeah. We paused there for a moment and decided that the topic of going on a retreat warranted its own episode, which we promptly recorded and will be releasing real soon. Thanks for listening to The Awakening Podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Check out the show notes, listen to more episodes and find our socials at awake-in.com. We'd love to hear your feedback, so do please get in touch.